This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. It's Fun Friday. My name is Jeff Sandu. Just like Christmas, silly season comes but once a year. With a stack of rents in his overcoat pocket, the traditional lack of tech and science stories during the summer months hasn't worried Culture Pop's Matt Armitage until now. Matt, are we in the Matt's plane equivalent of a desert? Hey, Jeff. Um, yes, well, that is normally the case most years. We get to a point sometime during July and August where there really isn't anything much to talk about. Mm. But this has been such a tumultuous and topsy-turvy year that the stories have kind of kept on coming. And as you said, uh, this year I've had more to rant about than <laughs> I've had time to rant. So the silly season has been a chance for us to catch up. And as we've been doing on and off for the last few weeks, I thought we'd catch up on some of the smaller stories and developments that have come out recently. So we have a topic or topics, I suppose. That means it's time to explain. Yeah, well, let's start with some environmental stories. We don't really cover as many environmental uh, things on the show as we Mm. probably should. But uh, one that caught my eye this week was from the wildfires that are raging across California, which some people are calling the holy fire. Um, Now, those are the same fires that President Trump says are happening because there's not enough water to fight them. And the California Fire Service is saying, nonsense, of course there is. Um, But one of the things that, uh, that we talk about on the show a lot is technology that doesn't always get use for the uh, purpose for which it was originally designed. I guess this is a story about Daniel Perez, who live-streamed the wildfire raging outside his home. Yeah, um, Perez lives in a small town outside LA, about 45 miles. That's about 60, 70 Mm. kilometers outside LA. Uh, When the police issued a mandatory evacuation order for the town, the last thing that Perez did was to turn on his home security cameras and connect them to the internet before he drove over to a (laughs) relative's house in a safe zone. So as the flames reached the backyard of his house in the middle of the afternoon, the uh, uh, the thick smoke activated the night mode on his camera Mm. and Perez was able to watch as the blaze was actually brought under control by the fire service. And what was really nice about the story was that once the, uh, the fire was under control, Perez noticed that his doorbell camera was capturing a fireman walking up onto the porch of his house. <laughs> and he was able to use the intercom to talk to the fireman. And the fireman reassured him that the house was intact, that the flames had only damaged the garden, but not the house itself. And Perez was able to thank the man and his colleagues for all of their hard work. Mm, we often talked about our tech infrastructure being very delicate. This story shows another side, that it's robust enough to work during a disaster. Well, that's kind of the weird thing, isn't it? Um, you know, wildfire yeah. is this very, very strange creature. I mean, I'm not going to bore you with <laughs> all the details of a story I, I read about what type of roof you have determines whether your house will survive. You actually uh, read that. Wow, great. It was, it was actually a really interesting story. It's all about the embers that collect in okay. the roof. So if you have a certain type of roof, it collects. Let's not get the embers. into that. We won't get into it. But um, I can only guess here, but I'm assuming that either the uh, the web coverage uh, was coming along overhead cables that were along streets that were protected by the firemen, mm. or they were underground and similarly protected. And not just the internet. Obviously, the power was still running, even though the town was surrounded by flames and yeah. part of the town was burning. Mm. And it's not the first time that this has happened. Back in 2016, another guy in the uh, US watched his house actually burn to the ground over Ooh. his webcam, which is, you know, that's yeah. not 
such a feel-good story. Sure. Um, but in this instance, though, I thought it was nice that this guy, Daniel Perez, he was able to use the technology to thank the firemen in person for mm. what they did for saving his house. From California, we're moving to Paris, but we're sticking with the environment team. Yeah. Now, I didn't realize, but Paris is the most densely populated city in Europe. It's oh. actually the most densely populated part of Europe. Wow. Uh, it's also one of the least green. Um, again, that came as a surprise to me. It may come mm. as a surprise to a lot of other people who have this mental image of yeah. wide boulevards and trees. But actually, less than 10% of the city's area is given over to green spaces like parks and other kind of, you know, just greened areas. Mm. So this unlikely concrete jungle has seen temperatures soar over this summer's European heat wave. Not to mention that Paris is in a basin, so it's a heat trap, even in a good year. Well, yeah. Um, so there's a, a project being trialed at a school in Paris called the École Riblette. Uh, back in June, temperatures inside one of the pupil recreation areas, which was an open courtyard surrounded by concrete walls, reached 55 degrees centigrade. Wow. Now, the human body uh, starts to cook <laughs> at temperatures of 50 degrees centigrade. So actually Whoa. your cells start to, to, to physically cook uh, wow. above 50. So obviously pupils had to stay inside the school. They mm. weren't allowed to go out into the, these kind of play areas. Uh, and we covered a story a few months ago. I think uh, this was with Richard when you were away. Um, where we talked about urban planners in China uh, taking radical steps to redesign urban spaces that are more adaptable to climate change. And one of the simplest ways is to prevent water runoff and to increase the green and vegetation cover. Yeah, which sounds a lot simpler than it is. Absolutely. Uh, in a lot of ways, it's actually easier when you're building cities from scratch, which is what's happening a lot of the time in yeah. China. Mm. And China's planners are actually looking back at the country's history. So they're looking at the design of stepped paddy fields, for example, using that model to retain water. So having water retention ponds mm. and to feed rings of vegetation that help to cool the vegetation down. In existing cities, of course, that's much harder because your infrastructure is already there. You're trying to adapt the architecture rather than building it to specification. But it's remarkable how simple the plans in Paris are and how, if, how remarkably effective those uh, small changes could actually be. Yeah, we're not talking about extensive rebuilding here. No, we're talking about planting trees for shade, <laughs> um, putting in flower and vegetable boxes. We're talking about replacing the uh, uh, standard concrete on mm. the ground with a water permeable material that slowly drains water off into the ground underneath and helps to prevent so much heat being reflected. So like with the Chinese model, this is looking at uh, the, the planning from a historical perspective and asking why our cities have become so poor at dealing with fluctuations in weather. So this project is just aimed at school children? Well, they're actually trying to make an impact citywide. If the results of this project are successful, then it will be rolled out to all of Paris's 800 schools. Mm. And apparently, because Paris is so uh, densely populated, no one in Paris lives more than 200 meters from a school. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, that, that is quite amazing. Yeah. So, um, so it is actually intended for Paris's wider population as well. Um, and when you're talking about issues like this, you have to make those changes to social policy as well as altering the physical infrastructure. It's important to make sure that everyone has access to those spaces because over the past few decades, we've seen schools shift from being kind of these semi-public spaces to mm. being very closed ones. And that's partly down to 
fears of terrorism and sexual predators and other exploitation of school children. So those are challenges that have to be overcome, not just in altering the schools, but in extending this kind of scheme to more public buildings and spaces and allowing people to have access to them. Mm. The shape of things to come, which actually kind of brings us nicely to a new shape that's already here. Yeah, researchers at the University of Seville have discovered a new shape. Hmm. Um, and no, they weren't messing around with adult colouring books. They were doing important research in biomedicine. It kind of ties in back to last week's show, uh, Don't Be Afraid of Biotech. Exactly. Uh, and the Seville team was researching into epithelials, which are the cells that line the inside and the outside of our body and without which TV shows like CSI couldn't <laughs> exist. Uh, they found that um, the epithelial cells adopted a very specific form as they were packed together. So originally they expected them to be shaped like pr uh, prisms or some kind of pyramid. The shape, which they have named a <laughs> scutoid, actually resembles a twisted prism. A bit like those crushable, disposable water bottles. I mean, not so much in terms of the shape, but yes, very much so in terms of the theory. Mm -hmm. um, the reason is exactly for that same reason, so that the cells can cram together and pack down. So they're like an architectural building block. It's, it's what allows organs to have that rigidity and integrity um, and structure in our bodies. Is there any real world application for the shape? Yes, very much so. Right. Um, there's a nice quote from the team on the uh, Design Boom website where they describe scutoids as being like the Lego from which animals are made, uh -huh. which I think is really cool. Mm. And of course, as we increase our research into areas like uh, 3D printing to make uh, replacement or artificial organs, knowing how these scutoids work and learning how to replicate them could mean the difference between printing a fully functional liver or basically a bowl of Bacadet. <laughs> yep, it's silly season. We'll be right back with more Culture Pops. Matt Armitage, BFM 89.9. Bringing fresh meaning. BFM 89.9. And we're back. It's Fun Friday together with me, uh, Jeff Sandu, and Culture Pops' Matt Armitage. It's episode 43, silly season. is uh, just before we ended the, the show earlier on, Matt was talking about Bakute. So that itself should give you a hint of, you know, what, what are the things to come. But Matt, before the break, uh, you were talking about scootoids. Any more discoveries for us this week? Well, yes, we're going from human organ soup to something actually more disgusting. Um, yeah. Uh, last year, the Whitechapel Fatberg was liberated from London sewers. Uh, now, for people who don't remember what that was, it's a mixture of uh, fats and household waste. Um, and it was one of the largest ever found. It was 250 metres long and it weighed 130 tons. And, yeah, and a small chunk of it has been put on display at the Museum of London. It was put on display in February and it proved to be a massive hit with the public. Is that safe, like, hygienic-wise? Well, of course, it's a major biohazard. Um, <laughs> you wouldn't want to actually touch it. Uh, the museum spent several months drying it out and it's now housed inside a box, inside a box, inside a <laughs> box. Uh, its odour has apparently mellowed somewhat, so <sighs> it currently smells like a damp basement rather than a, a sewer pipe. Uh, and what was intended to be a temporary exhibit has now been added to the permanent collection because demand to see it has been so great that they've now started live streaming it to the world. Why? <laughs> because it's still in the process of decaying. So you can log on periodically to see how it changes over ah. time. Um, and, you know, because it's become such an enormous draw, the museum staff wanted to extend its reach. Um, 
And if you're looking for something that sums up the way we live in densely populated urban centres, then a fatberg is actually a pretty good symbol. If you want to watch it, head over to what's lovely, uh, lovingly called the Fat Cam mm-hmm. on YouTube. Um, as of today, it looks like a, a piece of granite. Well, well, what it'll look like next week, I'm really not sure. I don't know. While we're on the subject of uh, liquids and gases, I've heard you've been to Planet Kelt 9B this week. Well, not as in actually visiting, as it's 620 light years away, <laughs> so you'd have to be talking to future Matt on the show again. Don't want to do that. No, you don't want to do that. Um, but I have been reading about it. Now, uh, KELT-9b is the hottest planet that we've discovered so far at around 4,000 degrees Celsius. Wow. Yeah, that's really hot. It's not as hot as our sun, which is around 6,000 degrees Celsius. <laughs> but, you know, compared to the temperature of our planet, yeah. which is, you know, 55 <laughs> degrees centigrade in Paris... There's a big difference between that and 4,000 degrees. Mm. Wasn't this discovered last year? This is a little bit old, even for Matt's plane. Well, it's back in the news this week because we've finally been able to discover what the atmosphere consists of. Uh, Scientists at the Galileo National Telescope in the Canary Islands uh, have been doing some really clever stuff by analysing the uh, tiny fraction of light from the star that... uh, uh, Kelp-9b orbits mm-hmm. uh, as it travels through the atmosphere. So they think the planet is largely gaseous, consisting mainly of hy- uh, hydrogen, but they also detected iron and titanium as vapor. Wow. So yes, this planet is so hot that its air is literally <laughs> vaporized metal. Is that unusual? Well, it's the first time we've seen signs of metals outside our solar mm-hmm. system. So, yes, that is pretty unique. And obviously, you wouldn't want to breathe no, those yeah, in at no, those no, temperatures. No. Um, and that's going to allow us to examine planets further, um, you know, as we as we get into the, this stage where we're looking at planets further and further away from our own. We can use these same techniques to allow us to spot um, oxygen or other molecules that are fundamental to the evolution of life. So this is kind of a training planet Mm. in a sense. We can spot the metals there and we can use that knowledge to see whether other planets further out are actually capable of supporting life. From the sewers to the stars, that's an oddly inspirational message. Uh, Let's stay with space for the next item. Well, there has been renewed interest over the past few years in setting up uh, permanent or semi-permanent bases on the moon. Uh, As we know, President Trump has just founded Space Force. Wow, we didn't plan that. (laughs) Amazing. Um, You just have to do that. You you can't do it in a normal voice. Um, And what good would uh, a Space Force be Mm. if its base had to be on our planet? So. China, India and the US all seem set to revisit the moon in coming years. And of course, if you want to send more than a couple of people for any length of time, you start to run into a lot of logistics issues. Not least of which is water. And you've hit the nail on the head, as (laughs) usual. Uh, Recently analysed data has shown that there is actually water ice in patches Mm. surrounding the uh, moon's poles, with the bulk of it concentrated at the uh, southern pole in areas that are sheltered away from the sun's glare. And it's hoped that that ice, which has been there for billions of years, could be used to provide drinking water for moon exploration teams. What happens when that runs out? Well, that's the part we're not very good at, right? We tend to use things without thinking too much about what comes after, um, which is why Paris is still trying to cool itself down. Extraction of the water might be an issue as Mm. well. So data would suggest that it's not present in sheets like you'd find in a glacier here on Earth. 
rather the ice is thought to have formed around granules of uh, moon dust, which have then been clustered together. So you wouldn't want to eat the ice like a lollipop, especially as that moon dust would probably shred your esophagus. Okay, uh, we're back on track. The inspirational imagery has disappeared completely now. What's happening in the world of AI? Um, How best to describe this next chap without saying anything that he can sue me for? Um, Tony (laughs) Kaye, the uh, Mm -hmm. mercurial director of American History X, which is a great film that was eventually edited by its star Ed Norton and released against the director's (laughs) wishes, is trying to do away with actors altogether. Mm. It's been reported that his next film will feature an AI-powered machine that has been trained in various acting techniques. From what I've read online, a lot of people are taking this with a grain of salt. Well, the whole project does sound a little bit bizarre. It's a sequel to a small indie comedy about an Iranian-American couple, um... Tony Kaye had nothing to do with the original. (laughs) There's nothing about it that suggests it would have a sci-fi premise. So you can only imagine that the machine would be trying to emulate a series of human actors for a story that's actually set in our present time. But automation, though, is coming to films. I mean, that part is very true. Uh, We can do incredible things with CGI and increasingly those tasks are being handed off to artificial intelligence. But we still rely on human performance. Um, even for movies like Lord of the Rings and Planet of the Apes, mm. um, where the incredible Andy Serkis does a lot of the motion capture that is then turned into the CG animation. Uh, because, and you know, we still use a lot of mechanical animals as well in everything from um, uh, the Jurassic Park franchise to, you know, all, all kinds of monster yeah. movies. Mm. Uh, so whether this, uh, this sequel, uh, which will be called Second Born Happens or not, Um, This is an obvious path for directors who don't really get on with human beings very much. It may not be from uh, Tony Kay, but I think we can expect to see human-free movies in the not-too-distant future. This isn't the only arts and AI story we've heard this week, is it? No. Well, I spotted this story in New Scientist. It's about a text-to-image algorithm that draws whatever you type. Um, It was developed by a guy called uh, Tao Zhu at... uh, Microsoft Research. Uh, It was trained on a subset of photographs and descriptions. So when you type a series of words, it matches them to particular colors, textures, or shapes. Mm, Can we try it? Is it it good? Well, the New Scientist writer concluded that the results are a bit rubbish. And I actually have to disagree. Um, The results are extremely surreal because the algorithm isn't interpreting the words in the same way that we would. So Mm. if you ask it to draw a picture of a woman... It puts together something that roughly resembles a woman. Um, And yes, you can try it. A guy called uh, Cristobal Valenzuela, an artist and researcher at New York University, has built a basic website around the algorithm. So you can try it out. Uh, Go to cvalenzuelalab.com and click on the work tab and uh, look for the text to image link. I've had about two hours of fun with it so far. And uh, no, I haven't asked it for anything rude. Now, you said this before the show that this next item is about Frida. Well, it's more about BFM getting more out of the enterprise team by replacing Frida (laughs) with a mean robot. Um, A team at the University of uh, Clermont-Auvergne put people through a series of tests based on the Stroop task. Which is... Well, if you've used those brain training apps, you may be familiar with uh, this task. It's actually really infuriating. Um, the word green is spelled out on screen, but 
the colour is ah, red, yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Um, or you may get a series of different colours, blue, green and red, and none of them is the colour they spell. Anyway, depending on the question, you either choose the colour and not the word or mm. the word and not the colour, and you're measured on your reaction time. It's really infuriating. It's way harder than it sounds, and it makes you want to throw your phone at the wall. And the robot helps how? Well, in the tests the university team carried out, the test subjects were overseen by a small robot. Um, Some test subjects were overseen by a robot with a friendly demeanor, and others were overseen by one that said things like, I don't want to be your friend. So the moral of the story is that we're scared of robots. Yeah, because they're mean. And this episode is starting to feel like a really bad dream here, Matt, which is ironic as our last item is about dreams, bad or good. I'm just not quite sure. Well, that depends on how much time you want to spend exploring your psyche. Um, Have you ever had lucid dreams? Honestly, I can't really remember any of my dreams. I know I dream, but like I wake up and go like, huh? Yeah, so I can't really remember what happened. No, so those probably aren't (laughs) lucid dreams. No, no, where you're actually conscious and you can take control of things that happen in the dreams. Um, I don't think I have either, but this is kind of the um, holy grail of the wellness and meditation crowd. Mm. Is there an app for that? Well, plenty of apps claim to help you get into that state, Um, but we're not talking about an app. This is actually a combination of an Alzheimer's treatment drug called galantamine and a cognitive behavior treatment. Why? So people can indulge in their fantasies of flying? Well, it might seem that way, but this is actually medical research rather than biohacking. Uh, This is a trial that's being done under medical supervision at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And there are actual and good reasons for doing this. The hope is that lucid dreaming can help people to overcome fears and other nasty stuff lurking in the subconscious. Mm. What did the test subjects do with their dreams? Well, there were 121 (laughs) adults in the study. Their ages ranged from 19 to 75. Um, Of the percentage who achieved that lucid state, one dreamed of falling donkeys and was able to consciously move out of their way. Great. What can you say? Um, Another participant used it to indulge her fantasies of rollerblading through a shopping mall. Um, And one of the pioneers of the project, Benjamin Baird, has actually tried it himself. And he marveled at how he could feel the texture of objects in his dream. He also brought a dead flower back to life. (laughs) So none of these is what you might call overcoming trauma. Unless you have an irrational fear of falling donkeys. Um, No, of course not. I mean, this is a test, not a treatment. This Mm -hmm. is to see if the theory works. Uh, Only once we can reliably put people into that lucid state can we begin to research the effect and the extent of the control rather than relying on these kind of wellness apps and hearsay. And of course, it's better to put mentally healthy people into that lucid dreaming state first than to use it on people with, you know, real phobias or disorders. Because, you know, we're making a lot of breakthroughs in terms of our understanding of the brain and the consciousness and the subconsciousness. And that's absolutely essential as we're seeing, you know, this big increase or at least increase in people coming forward for the treatment of mental disorders. So falling donkeys and rollerblading in malls may sound like a typical silly season story, but, you know, there's still some serious intent lurking behind the fun. But it is silly season after it all. It is silly season, yes. Uh, Matt explaining there with uh, episode 43. Uh, also, you can check out culturepop.com for transcripts of the show. And of course, you can find out how to bring a little bit of uh, silly season to your own company. <laughs> I'm just talking about Matt explaining to your company. We'll be right back with Geek Squawks, BFM 89.9.
Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.